I think what we have to learn is there is no totality, there is no absolute truth, there is diversity, there is ambiguity, how to deal with this huge amount of ambiguity in our world. And this is, I think, where, for me, the role of artists in art really come into the picture. Gerfried Stocker is a media artist and an engineer for communication technology and has been artistic director and co-CEO of Ars Electronica since 1995. Ars Electronica was established in 1979 and for over 40 years has been Europe's largest festival for art, technology, and society. It's more than a festival. The platform also includes the Ars Electronica Center, the Museum of the Future, the Pre-Ars Electronica Awards in Digital Art, the Future Lab Incubator, and much more to explore the questions about our future. Ars Electronica never asks what technology can or will be able to do, but always what it should do for us, which I greatly appreciate their human-centered approach. After stepping into his leadership role and as the guiding force behind Ars Electronica, Gerfried has led a talented team to revolutionize the Center and Future Lab. His influence spans from directing international exhibition programming, leading significant expansion and content revitalization of the center, amplifying the festival's reach to a thorough redesign of the center's interior and content. Gerfried is also a consultant for numerous companies and institutions in the field of creativity and innovation management and is active as a guest lecturer at international conferences and universities. The 2023 Ars Electronica Festival will take place September 6th through 10th in Linz, Austria. And in today's episode, you'll get to hear a fascinating conversation about its theme, Who Owns the Truth? Listen as Gerfried explores truth and reality, how we're building multiple and manufactured realities, and the importance of art to explore ambiguity to meet this moment in time. Enjoy. Welcome to Creativity Squared. Discover how creatives are collaborating with artificial intelligence in your inbox, on YouTube, and on your preferred podcast platform. Hi, I'm Helen Todd, your host, and I'm so excited to have you join the weekly conversations I'm having with amazing pioneers in the space. The intention of these conversations is to ignite our collective imagination at the intersection of AI and creativity to envision a world where artists thrive. Gerfried. It is so wonderful to have you on Creativity Squared. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me as well. Yes, it's been a long time coming. I've heard about <laughs> Ars Electronica for a long time uh, through all my friends uh, in Austria and then also uh, Reeps One, who was actually our first guest on Creativity Squared. I know he's been part of the festival mm -hmm. uh, before too. And I'm so excited. I actually get to go uh, this year, oh, uh, which great. will be my <laughs> my first time going. So I'm, I'm really excited. Yes, I can promise you it will be a very exciting experience just because of the really exciting, big and diverse community of people who are really deep into these uh, questions and relations of technology, creativity, art and science. And uh, it's really every year, I mean, might sound strange when I <laughs> promote this in this way, but uh, it's also for us organizing uh, this event. It's every year, it's really 
one of the most exciting things to be together with all these people, this, you know, enormous amount of ideas and, and, and excitement and inspiration that is happening throughout the festival. So I'm sure you will like it. Oh, I, I can't wait. <laughs> and you all have been in the AI and technology space for a long time, even though I feel like a lot of the, the mainstream consciousness about AI impacting our lives really happened last fall with the onset of chat GPT. Um, but let's dive into this year's festival theme, which I find really interesting. Um, and it's all about who owns the truth. So can you tell us a little bit about where that came from and why that's so top of mind uh, for you and uh, the organizers of the festival this year? I think it's obvious the, the the main motivation to choose this theme was, of course, this huge explosion of our attention towards uh, artificial intelligence, in particular, of course, that with ChatGPT, the the focus went so much on, you know, whether these AI systems, in particular, these large language models, whether they're really like, you know, super magic truth machines, the, the next generation of uh, super database, and, and, and you get just all the knowledge that you want, or whether they are something completely different. And I think this is still one of the big problems, that there is so much misconception about what's the nature of this technology and therefore what we can expect from it. And I think um, this really brings, of course, uh, the, the discussion that started already with the beginning of the digital revolution, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. Um, it is bringing this now really to, to a new uh, level and a new dimension. And this is, of course, uh, this transformation that happens when things are getting digital. So when you have information and you convert it into this new state of aggregation, and I think this is what digital actually is. It's a new state of aggregation um, of information. And suddenly it really changes the rules, almost the laws under which uh, information now suddenly can be worked with, can be accessed, has to be governed and all this question. And one of the main things always is, of course, the moment things get digital, they lose their status of being unique and original. Because digital automatically means endless numbers of copies of the same thing. And we have learned in, in, in the last decades also in, in, in businesses, in, the, in industries, think about music industry in particular, how painful it was for them, how difficult it was for them to, to get along with these changes that music no longer needs a physical thing like the vinyl or the CD, but it can, can be just everywhere at the same time. But after some time, I think, uh, in particular, the music industry has coped very well. And uh, uh, we see these transformations in so many areas. And now it's happening, of course, uh, on the next level with AI. And it's not only now the question of what is real in terms of physical existence, but now, of course, the big question, what is true? So reality also in terms of truth. And I think it's an interesting next level also of the discussion that we have since quite a while about fake, because fake always needs some real element that you can fake. So it always has to be re related to some reality. But what AI now is enabling us is a endless number of manufactured realities. So with the blink of an eye, you can create thousands, hundreds of thousands of different realities that 
you don't even have to make it up. So we don't need even, you know, the fantasy of people to make up new fictions and realities. It's just the machines. And this is probably something that really um, will have a, a huge impact on so many areas besides all the industrial and, and, and business areas. But really, how do we deal with our concept of reality and growth. And we will have, for example, a big symposium with many experts uh, where we speak about or that is called, you know, the end of truth. Are we now in, in, in this moment of time where we just, you know, we, we get rid of truth because it's so much more exciting or whatsoever to just reinvent uh, a reality every moment in time? That's so fascinating. And I, I could already imagine people listening could feel maybe a little uncomfortable because truth has been such a bedrock of how we understand reality and then to question it and have multiple realities. You know, what does that mean for our understanding of, of how we just interact in the world? I, I find that really fascinating. And I think this this is, of course, when we talk about uh, the, the impacts of AI, I think this is really one of the most uh, frightening because it's so difficult, almost impossible to really envision what the outcome will be. Because, of course, this understanding that there is a certain truth and there is also somebody, some places, some institutions that represent authority of interpretation of truth. This is, of course, a very important uh, scaffolding of social order, of the way how um, what we need as humans, as humanity, as societies uh, to live together, to organize our daily lives, to organize our businesses and all these kind of things. And it, it, it might be, you know, something that, that really could be maybe compared to the beginning of the Enlightenment when suddenly this um, unquestioned authority of religion, of the church, who owned the truth, because what the church said, what religion said, you know, this was the truth. Nobody was, you know, even daring or thinking about the question. And then came more and more all this, uh, um, uh, this new knowledge from natural sciences. And Newton was understanding uh, how gravity was working. Kepler was understanding how the planets were moving philosophers like Descartes uh, also started to build upon these facts of science. They started to build a new perspective, a new image of our world, and also, of course, uh, a new image of the position of humans in this uh, world. And as much as we are, of course, I think still, oh, you know, uh, I have to be really very grateful for these uh, early scientists and the way how uh, the, the, the scientific facts were able to replace the religious fiction. On the other side, this very mechanistic worldview has also contributed a lot to the big mess that we find ourselves now with all, you know, this uh, overarching uh, industrialization and uh, the idea that we can manage nature, that, you know, just with technology, we can do everything. I mean, it's, it's a great idea. And I'm a trained engineer myself, so <laughs> I, I know how exciting it is to be able to work with technology and to do what you imagine. But of course, it also led to a very strong um, misalignment between humans and the planet, human and the nature. And this is something that we see at the moment as well. And I think maybe what's going on right now, even 
it doesn't seem to be so clear. It was, it's, you know, in the hindsight, it, it looks quite easy to understand. Okay, they were first religion because we didn't understand the world. Then scientists made us understand the world and we got a new, um, also a new uh, authority of truth and interpretation, which was, of course, science and still is science. But we see, of course, also since quite a while now, in particular, um, I think on a global scale uh, due to the uh, COVID pandemics, that people more and more start to question science and that people that it becomes almost fashionable to be skeptic about science. And uh, I think this is really a very, very difficult thing because, of course, it is a misunderstanding to see science in a way uh, or as some authority that has the total absolute interpretation of truth. I think what we have to learn is there is no totality. There is no absolute truth. There is diversity. There is ambiguity. How to deal with this huge amount of ambiguity in our world. And this is, I think, where, for me, the role of artists and art really come into the picture. Because so far, everything could be negotiated between, I don't know, industry and politicians and, and things like this. But we see that we have to deal with phenomena that we are not used to deal with. We see that things are getting much more complex, that things turn out to be of a nature where a clear yes or no black or white answer will not be possible at all or definitely not sufficient in terms of helping us further. And of course, this is not new in humanity in human society and uh, you know thousands of years that we that we know about our history but every time when these things became very um, important and strong then we also see the upcoming of new philosophical religious spiritual dimensions so i think lots of these uh, uh, conspiracy theories nowadays is um, also very much due to this lack of orientation that is going on and then of course automatically you start you know to look what is more appropriate what is more what fits better to your actual uh, your own situation the, the way how you feel and well if it's uh, nicely presented uh, why shouldn't you believe in things even if you might rationally be able to understand they are stupid they cannot be true but of course, the, the category of truth is, is changing as well. And so you see, this will be a big thing this year at the festival to discuss this whole issue. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. It, as you were speaking, it uh, reminded me of a review of uh, a TV show here in the States called Euphoria, which is super popular. I, I never got into it, but it's kind of this high school landscape and it's not realistic at all, but it resonated with a ton of viewers as being emotionally true. Like the emotion that was conveyed in it held the truth. And it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of even Trump supporters that, you know, he, you know, probably does not honor what we, most people would consider truth, <laughs> but the, the emotional resonance of like uh, what truth is, um, I, I think is interesting. So like uh, the emotional component yeah. to truth, I think is an interesting yeah. uh, thing to explore. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, super interesting. And in a certain way, I think it's a, it's a way to approach the world that we 
just cannot, you know, uh, get rid of. And it, it, there is a quality behind this. You know, this is, I think, very much uh, the, the, this process of taking more and more care of the role of individuals. Uh, a process that is also in parallel going on, of course, with a, with a enormous growth of our awareness of the diversity on this planet. It seems, you know, that some of these things are like side effects of something that I think is extremely good and important. I mean, the, the necessity was already so strong, the urge to really start to embrace uh, the diversity and um, all these discussions of equality. Of course, on the other side, this can be wonderful, you know, arguments just to say, okay, well, you know, whatever I think, whatever I like to be true is true. And well, so far, so good. But then again, I mean, besides all these possible interpretations of our reality, there is still a lot of hard facts. There is science and science is something that is based on evidence. The science, true science, well done science is anyway not uh, claiming to own the truth, but it's a, a extremely important and wonderful tool of humanity to investigate our life, to understand our life, uh, to understand our world. And so when this, you know, conditionality, or I don't know what the right English term would be, but this kind of everything is possible because I like it at the moment. It, it, it fits my lifestyle at the moment. When this takes over, we might very easily come, you know, to a society that is uh, very easy to manipulate, where, and this is, I think, what we see behind Trumpism, uh, very strong. I mean, a society that is prepared for this, of course, can be easily manipulated, and that's uh, unfortunately not only a phenomenon in the United States. We see this uh, on a global scale in, in, in different flavors. So I think, again, this is now, uh, for me, another point where, Art, art festivals, cultural events really have a kind of responsibility to go into these topics because uh, we won't be able to solve this just with a clear yes or no decision. So we need to learn to deal with ambiguity, to be open to any possibility, but still to be very clear on you know, what's right or wrong. And even, you know, talking about this makes me confused because it's, it's <laughs> which is, of course, the nature of ambiguity. I mean, we are so trained mm. to say, you know, at the end, there will be always some right or wrong. There will be always some black and white. And probably art is one of the very few areas where there is space for ambiguity, where ambiguity even is maybe a source of the excitement uh, of art. I mean, we know this, for example, from music, uh, the, 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 the tensions that are built up by harmonies and dissonances, and then how you solve a dissonance into harmony, I mean, and how you solve a, a ambiguity of uh, harmonies into um, expected harmony. I mean, these are the moments when we say, oh, is this beautiful? So, uh, it's not just, you know, the, 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 the quality of art is not just in the beautiful result. It's in the way how we get to this moment of beauty. And the moment of beauty always goes through an experience of ambiguity. And I think this is a kind of uh, practice um, that allows artistic environments 
in terms of you know festivals, uh, cultural institutions, people who are artists who work artistically, that allows this as a spaces of artists to be more understanding for ambiguity and maybe find strategies or strategy already sounds like you know okay this is exactly the way how to do it but but allows to gain experience with how to deal with ambiguity besides hitting it, each other because the usual way how humans deal with ambiguity is we start to fight and we start to fight we get angry and we hit each other and so on and so forth so we need to find other uh, uh, ways to deal with it and i think art can really help us there yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I got to listen to uh, Stephen Fry. Uh, and that's actually where I met uh, Harry or Reap Swan was at this presentation from Stephen Fry, where one of the things that he said is that we really need artists to translate this moment in time. Because uh, if not, then uh, you get more of the dystopian or the fear around it versus kind of what you were saying, playing with it and using the art as an exploratory thing of what does this technology mean to us right now. So I love how, you know, art can help yeah. Um, yeah. guide us through that, this time that, period. That's, a, that's really important because we have, of course, fiction as one of the, you know, basic elements of art. This is what art is about. But the interesting thing is, you know, in art, we don't use fiction in terms of creating a final result or something final. Fiction in art is always used as a way of exploration. And I think that's the very big difference between fiction in all these, you know, fake and fake realities where uh, in a manipulative way, in a populistic way, uh, there is you create a fiction to give people an answer. But art creates fiction to allow people to express the right questions. And I think this is the very important point. Yeah, I love that. And especially, you know, in navigating what is real and what is not real, now that we have, you know, deep fakes have been around, but cloning voices and uh, AI manipulating images is just going to, I think be more widespread. So understanding what you're looking at and consuming, understanding if it's real or not real, you know, it's, it's, it's going to get very interesting. And even from, you know, a legal evidence standpoint of photographs and video being like, this is evidence of truth, you know, that's mm -hmm. going to go out the window really quickly right now, as well as we enter this, this phase. Yeah. I mean, this, this is again, the point where it gets a little bit frightening because, uh, I mean, we believe and I think we actually we live in a world in a time where many people in our societies due to a quite reasonable level of education. And of course, it varies very much even, you know, within wealthy and privileged countries like here, Austria, uh, we have, of course, big uh, discrepancies between the well-educated and it's a very social uh, difference, of course, and the people who don't have uh, appropriate access to, to education. But nevertheless, I mean, it's, it's in general on a very high level. So we tend to believe, and I think we do, we live in a time and in a world where we can as individuals, we can make proper decisions about what's true or, or not true, untrue. Um, 
this is how we have been raised. And I think it worked for quite a long time that if you were serious enough and, you know, you, you, you got your education and you got your senses together, you could quite easily, you know, find out the difference between a lie and the truth, the facts and the fiction, the manipulation and, and, and the reality. But of course, this is now getting away. It's you know, like the carpet that is pulled out under our feet. Uh, not even a very well-educated person is already now and will even uh, more so in, in, in the future when these tools become more and more perfect, be able to tell the difference between uh, truth and reality. And it will be not just, you know, not possible to look at the image and see whether it's the real Pope or the Donald Trump or a fake Pope or Donald Trump. It will be also when you try to investigate it. Because now at least, you know, I go into the internet and after a few minutes, you can find hints or evidences. But when this is, uh, when, when our whole networks, when our information spaces are really kind of soaked up with all these artificial different realities, I mean, where would you go? It's already now. I'm, I'm sure as, you know, as a journalist, you also uh, uh, experience this very often, you know, you don't really know anymore, you know, where should I really go for if I want to check the truth? So what this necessarily ends up with is that we need new authorities. We need new institutions or maybe people where we can resort to. And when we say, okay, now I really need to know whether this is true or not, who can I ask and this is, of course, is super dangerous. It's a vacuum you know, there is because there is nobody. We have demolished many of our uh, instruments of democracy. We have demolished a lot of the, the understanding of, you know, kind of public values, public goods, like, you know, there was in particular in Europe. I mean, it was for a long time, it was like, you know, the BBC go to the BBC and you can't be sure, you know, this everything will be true there. I mean, it still is, but it's eroding. The, the, the importance of this uh, public media, this uh, um, as institutions to look for the truth is eroding. So where will people go? And we see already, it's so easy then to, oh, Donald Trump said it, or, you know, our chancellor or our president. I mean, it, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. The easy solution is always go to the loudest voice uh, and the strongest voice. But we know from history that this is the most dangerous way. And um, I think it's you know no longer enough until very recent time we could say okay, what's necessary is you know learn maybe to understand how coding works, how software works, learn to understand you know how these big media, social media platforms, what is their commercial reality, you know how they are governed, you know what what are they really interested? Of course, they are interested in selling advertisement to make money. When you study these structures, you can already uh, get a very good guideline to deal with uh, uh, truth and, and lies. But this kind of, you know, cultural techniques will no longer be sufficient because the, the enormous amount, the tsunami of manipulated or, or yeah, invented uh, effects, this uh, uh, manufactured realities will really be a problem. But then again, there are these examples in history, you know, when book printing came up, <laughs> you can find the same uh, statements where people say, you know, if you can 
produce so many books every week uh, or it, it takes just one week to produce a book. Imagine how many books will be there and people will be completely confused. It will be the end of our culture. So I, I think that's also uh, something we always should be aware that uh, we we tend to always see the doomsdays. Uh, we should probably more focus on our possibilities and our responsibilities to prevent the doomsdays. And uh, this is what I think for the for the present time and for the coming years is probably the most important thing for us as individuals as well as society. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and one thing that you said that, that was interesting is, or in, also in the description of the theme is uh, the rights and obligations of digital citizens and how much, you know, the, our offline and online worlds are blurring. And uh, you just mentioned that there's, you know, the institutions are crumbling, but we don't really have, in my mind, adequate institutions at a global scale. Because even if you look at social media right now, depending on which country you live in, you have different digital rights. You know, Europeans with GDPR have the most digital rights. So even though we're accessing the same platforms, you know, we're coming to it with different digital rights uh, in that regard. And I, I thought it was actually really interesting that Facebook, and it was actually forward thinking that Facebook established the oversight board, because um, I thought that was actually, you know, uh, a good approach, except for that it's a derivative of Facebook and Facebook almost tell, like a child telling a parent, like, this is how you're going to parent me. But in the, uh, in the realm of uh, imaginative uh, institutions, I thought it was an interesting step forward. And OpenAI has a grant out now. Um, uh, or the, the application just closed of like, you know, what's novel and innovative ways to regulate AI, but I haven't seen, you know, a, a global um, effort to like put, put together or coming together. How do we want to regulate the internet or what are the guidelines or institutions that we want? Have you seen anything or what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, a, a global effort uh, mm -hmm. in this space from an institutional standpoint? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are these two problems. The, the second one uh, of them is what you mentioned, the global dimension of it. We are so unprepared to deal with topics on the global dimension because we are, and we, when I say we, I mean, you know, like Europe, United States, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, maybe so the, the rich industrialized small parts of the world, you know, that we are so used that we own this authority of interpretation. We... I mean, we don't always act in the best way, but we would at least know how to do it. This is the kind of you know, understanding we have for ourselves. So the moment we think about global, we immediately have hierarchies in our mind. We think about the powerful, the rich, the successful, and the poor, and whether you know we look down at it or whether we, in a kind of paternalizing way, uh, think about them as you know, oh God, these poor people who have nothing to live. There's always, and it's it's super difficult. I mean, I think everybody who is true to him or herself knows that even when you really try. We are so impregnated in our Western culture with this hierarchical perspective that uh, finding global dialogue and really creating global institutions or authorities 
that we really take serious. I mean, not this kind of globality where we say, okay, we have the money, so we establish now, I don't know, an international courtyard according to our understanding of rules, how to govern climate change or artificial intelligence or something. But really global in a terms that would give everybody an equal chance to get its right and get its perspective. Um, the second thing is... Um, very much, I think, the problem we have been discussing so much about how terrible it is to lose privacy with digital world. But what we really have overseen completely is that in this process, we completely lose the public. There is this old traditional value of something that is public that belongs to everybody. The representation of society and public by a government, by a parliament. I mean, everything that is democracy. It became probably so um, normal and so everyday that we, we, we just forgot for some time to really think about that democracy, true democracy, uh, liberal democracy, open democracy is something that you really constantly have to uh, work on it. And when it's now, you know, to, to look at this um, this question of what could be institutions or authorities, I mean, it's really nice that uh, whether it's Facebook, Google, or now OpenAI, I mean, this establishing their ethical boards. And, but I mean, it's it's not even a joke because it's such a bad joke. You can only get angry about it. I mean, oversight can only work if it's extra institutional. So so in the same way as a government needs oversight, which is the parliament, which is the these people who are elected by the people and then they are the parliament and they are there to be the oversight of the government. The same thing is, of course, with companies. I mean, in, in particular, when it's these super big and powerful companies, I mean, no way that... They could really be the authority of oversight. I mean, it's good that they built up these teams as a kind of consultants to the management, as consultant to the to the developers and inventors and, and so forth. But we need independent uh, uh, institutions, uh, and I think this is something we also seem to have forgotten. I mean, very often when, when I talk about this, people tell me, yeah, but how would this be able, you know, with the super big companies and, and business would no longer be possible because all of this would. I mean, think of one of the most important business areas, with, which is food and agriculture. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty the same in the United States uh, than here in Europe. I mean, millions of officers every day swarm out to look at every food stand, at every burger shop, at every supermarket, at every restaurant to make sure that there are certain levels of hygienic uh, measurements done to make sure that when you go there as a guest in the evening in the restaurant or to a food stand in, in, in your lunch break or to the supermarket, that you can be basically very sure of that things won't harm you. Think about uh, all the car industry. I mean, how many rules and regulations do you have undergo until you are able to a car that is manufactured in Asia or in the United States to send it to Europe or the other way around. So we have examples of successful businesses 
and we could probably add a lot more uh, where we have a very strong regulation and it's not damaging economy it's actually supporting the economy because at the end it's all about true uh, trustworthiness you need to be able to trust that when you enter a supermarket or a food stand or a restaurant and so on that their prime ident is not just you know to rip off your money and and they don't care whether you get sick or not so i think even if it will take some time we will be able to do this and uh, and european union has been uh, really uh, at the forefront of this with the gdpr i mean we have now big difficulties with the european ai act that is strongly influenced by um, the the big companies so we are not very happy with how it went so far but it's always a and, process and for those who and for those who aren't familiar with the european ai um act can you kind of bring everyone up to speed where it was and why you're not happy with it <laughs> how many more hours do we have <laughs> maybe more the the elevator version <laughs> yeah, i mean the elevator version is uh, harmless i one can only say okay the european union understood <laughs> that it's important for two reasons to uh, build up a kind of uh, basic regulations. Uh, the one reason, of course, is uh, because Europe is really afraid of losing any chances to compete in the global market. So it's very much about the digital sovereignty of Europe and, and the European states. And the second one, of course, is to protect people from it. And basically, they were on a very good way to, to develop this until uh, beginning of the year when ChatGPT, you know, this big boom, <laughs> changed every, every discussion and every opinion about AI. And so they, in, in many ways, they had to start again. So there is still uh, very interesting things there, I think, that are really going in the right direction, like really regulating the way how um, uh, face recognition and this kind of biometric identification systems, that they cannot just be applied to any public space. You need uh, a good reason. You need a court uh, to give you the permission to do it. So you cannot just put on cameras and, and have mass surveillance like uh, uh, it's happening in, 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 in China in, in many cities. But in terms of really understanding what has to be regulated, I think we still have this big problem. We don't really see that what we need to regulate is the companies, the people who develop it and who decide about the applications. So it's so much easier to say, well, let's think about some rules, how to regulate the technology. But and, and, and I think this is uh, uh, quite a big problem and, and it, it would really take much more time to elaborate about it. And I'm not totally negative about it. I mean, it's, it's an important first step. Uh, we just cannot now say, okay, fine, it's done. Uh, but I think this is clear also to the policymakers in, in, in Brussels. And I think it was very important at the end that they made a first draft and, 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 and the first also uh, um, set of regulations, so not just a draft anymore, um, as a starting point. And uh, it will be, of course, an uh, endeavor and, uh, and, and, and a challenge for the coming years, no doubt about this. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very pro regulation in general, so uh, I'm very curious uh, how how it will play out. Um, 
Well, and one thing that I really love about um, Ars Electronica is that it's art, technology, and society, and that you really, um, you know, focus on the society portion too. Uh, can you share with our listeners and kind of expand how you think uh, how you think about that and looking to the future, how they should all support each other? Mm-hmm. Well, we have this super lucky, uh, privileged situation that already in 1979, 44 years ago, two years before IBM brought the personal computer to the market, three years before Sony brought the first CD player to the market. So really stone age of digital uh, world, uh, there were these uh, clever people, a scientist, an artist and a journalist who came together to develop a new art program for the city of Linz. And because they were a scientist, a journalist and an artist, of course, they couldn't really decide so easily, should it be a scientific conference, an arts event, or just you know a big social entertainment. <laughs> and probably after many weeks of discussing, they said, well, okay, you know, just damn it. Let's call it Festival for Art Technology and Society. <laughs> I mean, this is a little bit uh, the the funny interpretation of mine, of this original. But the very important point is that they really took this serious. They understood that uh, transformation is something that cannot be just guided and driven by one sector. If you need to change things, you need to bring in everybody. And I think this was their main idea to really uh, create this triangle of art, technology and society. And the great thing here is of course that the concept behind this is utilize use you know these wonderful qualities of art and artists their curiosity their eagerness to look behind the curtain they're merciless in how they deconstruct things and of course the excitement how they create something new out of it i mean this is such a wonderful set of of of, of uh, uh, qualities that the art brings to use this to try not only to understand how new technologies are shaping society and vice versa, but to empower people and enable people to become a part of it, to integrate in it. So it was not just the idea to be educational, but to enable people to become creators, participants uh, themselves. And the second great thing is, of course, it put us Electronica in a position between the chairs. Because if you are a festival for art, technology, and society, of course, each of these three sectors say, ah, you know, you don't belong to us. You know, you have too much technology. This is what the artist said and the scientist said. I mean, you are not only, you know, uh, uh, professors of universities. So how can you dare to speak about this? And the good thing is when you set up between the chairs, you recognize at a certain point, wow, this is your own territory and you can build up, so to say, your own perspectives. And in all these decades now, uh, with uh, thousands of artists uh, from all over the world, uh, um, we have really been able to grow a kind of platform where exactly this way of looking at the world, thinking about the world is not just a nice add-on, but it's the core of us, Electronica. So it's not the art festival that is also looking a little bit into science or a scientific conference that is doing some playful things with the artists. This interdisciplinarity, this crossover, however you call it, this is the core of us electronic. And I think this is what makes it so exciting. 
I love that it started with a journalist, a scientist, and an artist uh, that came together for the festival. That's really great. And I feel that we could speak for hours on this uh, subject, and we barely just scratched the surface with everything that you have going on with the festival and a university and prizes. So um, uh, before we sign off, what are some things that you want to make sure that our listeners and community know either about Ars Electronica or just about AI uh, and art in this moment? And that's kind of a big question for <laughs> sign off, <laughs> but I'll throw it out there. <laughs> well, as, as I think it's happening quite often with this, you know, super interesting topics of how technology is related with uh, social developments and innovations. Of course, we have wandered out in <laughs> in many areas. The core, of course, for me and then for us, Electronica, is that it's really extremely valuable to have this artistic perspective on it. I mean, this is, it's not just another conference or another event where people talk about AI. Um, it's an event where you really bring in also the very different perspectives. And one thing, for example, to mention is we have a super interesting program since um, it's the third time already this year. It's called Festival University. And it's like a summer school for international university at the festival. It's something that we are creating, creating together with a, a, a totally new university that is being founded here in Linz. Last year, we had 200 students from more than 80 countries coming together here for four weeks and uh, they come from very diverse backgrounds, from art and design, from engineering, from social sciences, whatsoever. And just to have this experience of people from such different backgrounds uh, coming together, working on the topics of the festival. This is really a, a very unique thing. Um, it is one of the experiences where it really still makes super sense to travel I mean, something that we are, of course, discussing very often nowadays, you know, all the people traveling to our place to see the festival. But then again, if we don't create these moments where like-minded people can meet each other and uh, have their experiences and, and their learnings, then I think we do even more damage uh, than uh, we cannot do all of this just online. I think that that's I'm, I'm at least... Based on my age, <laughs> I'm totally convinced that we need physical uh, social uh, exchange uh, as well. And I think this is uh, a very important part. Another interesting thing to mention, of course, is that the festival also has become the frame for many really wonderful international award activities. So we have an award competition since 1987 for digital arts, for artists who work with computers, with new technologies, from computer animation to art projects that work with biotechnology and, and genetic engineering. Since this prize started, we had, I think, about 80,000 submissions. Only this year, we had 4,200 submissions. Uh, there is a huge crowd of international experts who serve as jury members to select the prize-winning project. So you can't be pretty sure that some of the best projects that are actually happening right now out there will be at the festival, because not we are so great in doing the festival, but we have this wonderful network of experts uh, who decide uh, these uh, parts of the programs. 
another important part for us is really building bridges. The festival has also really become a kind of family event for the local citizens here, for the region. I in particular, like Saturday, Sunday, it's, uh, we do, for example, a farmer's market embedded into the digital art festival. We have a concert night where the symphony orchestra is playing together with digital avant-garde musicians. So it's really about looking into the diversity and making the or giving the diversity a platform where it really can happen. And so the only thing I can wish for that uh, we will have another 44 successful years. And if you can't come this year, I can promise there will be another opportunity next year, but I would recommend to come this year. Yeah, I love it. And I'm so looking forward to, to being there in person uh, and especially hearing more. Um, I, I'm really curious how the artists are going to explore this theme about truth and multiple truths and the plurality and kind of the, the nuance and ambiguity uh, in it. Um, well, last question is, you know, since you're so well-versed and have been in the space so long of AI and creativity, do you have any uh, predictions um, of and the tech is moving so fast or, or wishes as we uh, are in for this moment in time? Well, I think in particular, it's super important that the artists, the people who are, and it's difficult to describe it like this, but to be on a, on a point, who are the real creators, I mean, we have so many content production nowadays and many areas of content production that's obvious can't be replaced by AI. But then I think there is a certain level where it's not just enough to press a few buttons to create something that looks nice or sounds nice. Art always is a process of investigation, of research, of diving deep and going beyond the obvious. And if these people are you know, embracing AI, I'm totally sure that uh, super new things will come out. And that at the end, I think the, that's maybe one of the few possibilities we have to mitigate the dangers as well. I mean, one thing, of course, is important to raise the awareness about the difficulties, about the dangers. Um, the other thing is to work hard on examples on possibilities that show the, that, that not only show the benefits because it sounds immediately like advertisement for it, but that utilize the benefits, utilize it for, for, for uh, your own uh, possibilities. And I think this form of critical awareness and creativity coming together as one of the really uh, characteristics of what artists actually are and what artists are doing. This is the really interesting thing. Um, I mean, any other prediction in this area, of course, is uh, super speculation. Uh, I'm just pretty sure that artists will find interesting ways working with it, much more interesting ways that we have right now. I think that's also important at the moment we are, most of the projects are in a very early stage. It's very early experimentation, which is necessary. And I'm super happy and, and proud of all the artists who, who go in this area. And there, there are great, exciting uh, things already there. But this is the beginning. Well, I have one, one more follow-up question because um, 
I'd like to ask this question of, have we seen the Citizen Kane of digital art in the same way that Citizen Kane made us really rethink the entire form of cinema? Um, Have we seen uh, an art uh, that's really made us rethink the, the medium of digital in a way that's transformative? I mean, I would say immediately yes, but I know then you ask me who is there. <laughs> you should never do this as a, as a festival organizer and festival creator. <laughs> so the diplomatic answer is, of course, yes, there are many of them. And also mm-hmm. Citizen Kane is one of, you know, these uh, uh, movies that uh, really, so to say, showed us, I mean, also to understand what Citizen Kane showed us. We needed, you know, many of these other experiments. And Citizen Kane was, of course, maybe the one of the best well-knowns, but the moment you start to think, you know, what other artists, I mean, just think of, you know, like the French Louis Bunuel and, and people who really reinvented not only cinema, but they created a completely new art form of expression out of it course commercially less successful but i think it's the multitude of approaches uh, that we have and if we have the citizen cane i would be anyway immediately skeptical because i think you know this is too mainstream this cannot be really i love it i love it well i i feel like we could we could talk for hours but um it is such a pleasure thank you so much um it's Uh, Really great to have you on the show, Creativity Squared, and I look forward to meeting you in person in the fall, hopefully. Yes, thank you very much. It was really enjoyable to talk about our activities and looking forward to see you in September. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're just getting started and would love your support. Subscribe to Creativity Squared on your preferred podcast platform and leave a review. It really helps. And I'd love to hear your feedback. What topics are you thinking about and want to dive into more? I invite you to visit creativitysquared.com to let me know. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you can easily stay on top of all the latest news at the intersection of AI and creativity. Because it's so important to support artists, 10% of all revenue Creativity Squared generates will go to ArtsWave, a nationally recognized nonprofit that supports over 100 arts organizations. Become a premium newsletter subscriber or leave a tip on the website to support this project and ArtsWave. And premium newsletter subscribers will receive NFTs of episode cover art and more extras to say thank you for helping bring my dream to life. And a big, big thank you to everyone who's offered their time, energy, and encouragement and support so far. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. This show is produced and made possible by the team at Play Audio Agency. Until next week, keep creating.